Well, for most of us this week, life gets back to normal. The holiday travels are officially over. Kids are back in school. The Christmas decorations are back in the storage unit. And it's interesting how there's been analysts that have looked at millions of different tweets and social media messages and how the first Monday after New Year's Day tends to be the saddest and most depressing and most miserable day of the year, which was just this last Monday. And so it was called what? Oh, no one heard about this? It's called Blue Monday. No, I'm, Google it. I'm serious. It was called Blue Monday this last week. And so it even has the title now, the, the first Monday after New Year that tends to be kind of a downer because the weather's not so bad. Well, here the weather is awesome. But in most of the world, the weather is kind of bad this time of year. And half the, the Western world that tends to give titles to, like, Blue Monday, they're the ones that tend to have bad weather this time. He is right, though. The lower half of the planet is enjoying great weather, but so are we. But, you know, even though there's this, there's this lull on, oh, well, the holidays are over, and now I'm back to normal, now, but moms are happy because kids are back in school, and so they're all they're excited about that. But really, as, as believers, we're not immune. I mean, we're not. We can all feel blue. We, we can all have these down days or, or difficult moments or seasons that are challenging. All of us can have these blue days, blue Monday or otherwise. The reality is that we all need God's grace that we're in need of his mercy, we're in need of his presence, of his spirit's work in our lives, that we need God's grace and we need God's truth. And we need ongoing, quite honestly, daily correction in order for us to live lives of victory and to not live down when circumstances aren't always going our way. But there is good news, and that's why we're here, right? We're not here because we're blue. We're here because there's good news. There's good news. The gospel means good news. That Jesus has come and he has conquered our enemy. And he has purchased for us redemption. He offers us forgiveness. And he wants us to have lives of victory. Whatever side of the planet you're from, we're here together. And he wants us to have this life of abundance. For Christ came to give us life but to give it to us in abundance because he loves us and because of him and who we are in Christ, we have immense value. You have purpose and you matter. And so with these thoughts in mind on God who has a plan to redeem and who we can live victoriously, today we pick up our teaching series that we began in September that we took a pause at the end of November. For the month of December, we had our Christmas series. We went through Luke 1 and 2. Now that everyone's back on holiday, we're back on track, back to our teaching series called Redemption, the Gospel in the Book of Exodus. And so we're back to where we left off at the end of November. And so God indeed has a plan, and he wants his people to live lives that are joyful, He wants us to sing and to have this joy that is in our hearts and just bubbles over. And so today, the sermon is titled Redemption, so it's enjoying a relationship with God. 
And so at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, which began again in September, what you see is God has a plan that he's putting into motion. Uh, a plan to do what? Well, the plan to save his people for his own glory to be displayed. People that were in slavery. And so the overall theme of the book of Exodus from chapter 1 to chapter 40, the theme of the book is that God has a plan to save a people for his own glory. And God is actively revealing and displaying his majesty and his glory through Exodus. And he begins by defeating the Egyptians that were the world superpower of the ancient world. And supernaturally, God defeats the Egyptians. And he liberates his people from slavery. And he provides a lamb, the Passover lamb, that would be a substitute that would represent the families of Israel. And that the lamb would pay the price so that his people could be free so that their sins could be paid for, and they could be accepted by God. And he leads them powerfully out of slavery. He opens the Red Sea against impossible odds with circumstances that were beyond their control, and God makes a way. And that is a point of Exodus when it comes down to it. It's pointing to how God made a way not only to liberate the Israelites, but this points to the person and the work of Jesus. That is a point of exodus. It points to the gospel. That God has a plan to redeem, and he does it through the cross that we've sung about this morning. You see, the book of Exodus is not just a story describing how God saved a people, the Israelites, many years ago from slavery in Egypt. It is the, not a, it is the story of God's salvation as it points to the gospel. And so God desires to have his name be known. He wants people to recognize his majesty and to respond to him appropriately with lives of worship. And so our God is actively displaying his beautiful and his eternal perfections. That's what he does. And he does it through redemption, by saving and by transforming rebels like me and you. That's what God does. And so today we pick up the story where we left off last. Israelites have been liberated. They're now out of slavery. The Egyptians are all destroyed. They're in the wilderness. And they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. Let's begin reading in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. And as you turn there, Exodus 19, and this is your first time here, I just want to have a full disclaimer. When, when going through these Old Testament long narratives, these stories, I really believe it's important for us to read it. It's so often that we can just skip over and talk about it and never actually read it. But there is power in God's Word. And quite honestly, anything that I say is just commentary, explanation, or application of what is authoritative, which is God's Word. So Exodus 19, let's begin reading in verses 1. Through six, and it will be on the screen. On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. 
while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him to the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's been about seven weeks since they left slavery in Egypt, and they arrived to the Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and God calls Moses to the top of the mountain. He goes up there, and God reminds him, I, God, I am the one that saved you from slavery. He says, like, like on eagle's wings, his metaphorical language of this supernatural deliverance. He reminds him, this is not by your power, your might, your intelligence, your attractiveness, your strategy, none of that. It was me. I save you. And then God makes it clear why. He's personally, he says, to bring you to myself. And he says that, and then if you keep reading in verses 7 through 15, in that section, what you have there is that God reveals to Moses what they must do. He tells them that they have to get themselves ready for what's going to happen. He goes down, and he, now the Israelites know that God wants to enter into a covenant relationship with them. So God is initiating, saying, I want you, Israel, to be my people and enter into a covenant with me. So Moses goes down. He tells all of the Israelites, hey, God wants to have a covenant with us and have us be his people and he be our God. And then in verse 8, it says, all the people answered together, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they say, yes, we want that. We want God to be our personal God. We don't want God out there, remote, controlling the universe, but not caring for us. We love this God, and he has loved us and redeemed us and saved us. And yes, we want that. We'll do whatever God says. Now, we can all do that sometimes, say, yes, we'll do whatever God says, but let's see what develops as the story continues. They say yes, so the next two days, they get ready. They have this fast, and they consecrate. They make themselves holy. They clean their clothes. They're, they're getting spiritually ready for what's about to happen. And then on the third day is when God is about to speak Now, God tells Moses in this section, make sure the people know when I come on the third day, don't even touch the mountain. My presence will be on the mountain. He says, set limits so that people don't go in and don't go onto the mountain. Stay at the foot of the mountain, on the ground. Don't even touch it. And so let's see what happens, verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, I admire Moses. I really do. Because I would have been way too terrified to even go up. I mean, you see the smoke and the fire, and the trumpet blast, and the thunder voice, and God says, come up. And Moses obeys. I really do admire him. And he goes up. And in the subsequent verses, it describes how God tells him, now tell the people not to come up. Now, three days earlier, he had already told them not to come up. And now that there's this amazing display on the mountain, And God tells him, now don't come up. Make sure that people know not to even touch the mountain. And so Moses probably, I can imagine what he's thinking. He's probably thinking, okay, the whole thunder and the whole lightning and wrapped in smoke and you down with fire and the thunder voice and the whole mountain is shaking. We're good. I don't think anyone has any interest in touching your mountain, God. We're all too freaked out to even think about touching your holy mountain. But he goes down and faithfully tells the Israelites, hey, God really means it. Don't touch the mountain. Don't even go on it. Don't just listen. And as Moses is right there with the Israelites, Remind them of God's absolute holiness and display of power. God speaks. He speaks loudly, clearly, where Moses and the rest of the Israelites can hear from a thunder voice from this mountain, wrapped in smoke with thunder, lightning, fire, God's presence, and God speaks. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Holy. 
Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet on the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. There is indeed tremendous spiritual blessing that comes to God's people when we simply read, hear His Word, eternal, inspired by the Spirit, inerrant and useful for teaching, for correcting, and for training in all righteousness. Indeed, God's Word leads us. Let me give you the main idea from this text, from Exodus 19 through 20. There is one overarching theme. There is this singular main idea. Now, there is a lot that we could cover. We cannot cover it all, but we will go a little bit deeper in our home groups. We meet every week. We have several meet throughout the city in the evenings, most of them at least. And you can join the home group. And you can study the sermon that's preached a little bit more in depth with application in your home groups. And so if you're not in a home group, you're missing out. You're missing out on fellowship, but you're also missing out on some growth that you could have by being in there. So I encourage everyone to join a group. Now the main idea for this text is that due to his mercy, God reveals himself. That's the point of Exodus 19 and 20. God is merciful. God is gracious. And out of this mercy, due to his overwhelming, bubbling over mercy, God reveals himself. So everything in this story, in these two chapters in Exodus, point to God's amazing love and grace and mercy. Now, I already know some of you are thinking. I already know. I can, I, I can like, read your minds, a few of you at least. You're thinking, really? Are you sure we read the same story? Because I don't see it. I don't see how this story is primarily and fundamentally about God's mercy and his grace. This is about a powerful God. Agreed. This is about a God who is showing that he's very powerful. And he is giving a bunch of rules for people to follow. And so this is showing off how God is big and strong and has all these rules for people to follow. Now, some of you think that. And I don't blame you if you think that because at a very casual reading, a lot of people think that because these Ten Commandments are usually ripped out of context and put on a wall somewhere. And it's not. It's Exodus 20, 1 through 17. It's in the story of redemption 
in the book of Exodus. It has a particular context to it. So it's very important to remember the whole context because this is not about God giving a bunch of just random rules for people to follow. It's not. That's not what it is at all. This is about God revealing himself. This is about God speaking. And in and of itself, God speaking is an act of mercy. The fact that God speaks is mercy. His revealing himself is grace. And that's what we see here. Let's see exactly how. Let's get a better understanding of how God's speaking, how God revealing himself is mercy. There's three reasons why God speaks from this text. Three specific reasons why God speaks, why he reveals himself. Number one, God reveals his character. And so when God speaks, number one, he is showing us who he is. He is speaking, he's revealing and saying, this is who I am. This is what I am like. And so he's revealing his character. The Israelites had their eyes opened and they could see what the one true God is really like. What did they see? What did God reveal of himself at Mount Sinai that applies to you and me? Because God is the same today as he was yesterday, as he will be forever. There are three specific character traits that God is revealing in this text. The first one is awesome power. He's revealing awesome power. He's revealing infinite power. He's revealing that he has power over nature, that you can't exaggerate God's power, that he is absolutely sovereign, and he does as he pleases, that he is the king, has infinite power, and then we just stand in awe of God. But he's revealing, secondly here, untouchable holiness. He's revealing that he is so holy that it reveals that he came as fire, not like fire, that he came as fire. God manifested himself as fire on Mount Sinai. This holy, pure, all-consuming, all-powerful, holy fire. And for you and me, as humans that are not holy, to stand before the full presence of God would be like taking a tissue and putting it up next to the sun. It would disintegrate before it even got anywhere near it. That's us before God's untouchable holiness. But he also reveals his tender mercy. He's revealing mercy here. He reached down to save them. They were lost in slavery. And he reminds them more than once in this text, I saved you as on eagle's wings. I brought you out of slavery. I'm the one who did this. I loved you. I saw you in pain. I saw you languishing in slavery. And I took the initiative because I love you to rescue you from your captivity, from your bondage. So he saved them. They didn't deserve it. He just, out of his own good pleasure, did so. Overwhelming grace. But on top of that, he saves them, and then he speaks to them. 
he reveals himself to them. You have to think, this is absolutely radical for an ancient Near Eastern Bedouin. This was absolutely radical to have a God who speaks. Now, it's hard for us to understand that because we're a very modern 21st century world and you have secular humanists and you have atheists and naturalists and pluralists and people that have all their thoughts. But in the ancient world, that didn't exist. There were no atheists. None. Everyone believed in God or a God or gods. Everyone. Everyone. There was not one person you could meet in the ancient world that denied that God existed. They all knew it. They all knew so you, you wonder who's more intelligent today or back then, but I digress. They all understood that there is a God and that there is a creator and there was design to the world. No one denied that in the ancient world. So they knew there was a God. They knew that he was a creator. And they even knew that he was powerful. That was visible clearly to them in nature. And they knew that they were sinful. They knew the gods were mad at them. They knew that. And they knew that they had to appease the gods. Well, how did they know that? People got sick. People died. Sometimes it wouldn't rain. The crops would fail. They, they couldn't feed their children. Bad things would happen to them. And they knew that it's because of their sin. And they had to somehow appease the gods. And so what did they do? They used their own reason. They used their own logic. And they would do things like they would burn their infants to the god Molech. They would do that. There's been excavations that, that have found huge mass graves of infant bodies that were burned to Molech to appease this god so there'd be rain. And they would cut themselves. And they would bleed on the ground, somehow trying to appease their gods. Or they would turn to this prostitution that was religious. If, you, if you've heard of the Asherah poles, that was a very erotic religion that had prostitutes that was worship. And they would turn to that, trying to figure it out using their own logic using their own reason to try to make sense of the world and try to understand why things don't always go right, why do people die or get sick, and why do the crops fail, and the world isn't right, and they knew it. They knew that something was fundamentally broken with the world and them, and something was wrong, and they wanted to make it right, but they did not have revelation. All they had was reason. And so they used their own thoughts and imaginations to try to make sense and figure it out. And that leads to despair. When we focus on our own reason and we neglect revelation, we have no hope. The only way that we know, the only way that we can know why the world exists and there is a God who is good, and that we are sinners, and he sent his son for us, and we have hope, is because God spoke. Because of revelation. We need it. Praise be to God. 
and he speaks. The Israelites were unlike the rest of the world because whereas the rest of the world was lost and trying to figure it out for themselves, the Israelites knew how to please their God. God had made it clear. They knew the expectations. They knew what the relationship would look like. They had clear instructions from their God who could speak. The other religions had idols. They could see their gods, but those gods could not speak. The Israelites did not have idols. They could not see their God, but he spoke. Makes all the difference. Revelation is grace. God making it known is grace. And so, first of all, God reveals in order to reveal his character, who he is and what his expectations are for us. Second reason why he speaks. So, first is for his character, and then secondly, he reveals for relationship. So, he reveals, first of all, for his character, and then he reveals for relationship. You see it in verse 5, chapter 19. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You will be my treasured possession. You will be mine. So God personally says you belong to me, and he enters into a covenant, an agreement, a relationship with them. Now again, not not that I can guess, but I can guess, Some of you are thinking, I don't understand you talking about this whole relationship thing. The only thing that I see here is that they're scared of God on the mountain, and now he gives these conditions. If you will obey, and here's ten rules, you have to follow these ten rules. And if you obey these ten rules, then I, God, will accept you. And so you you better wise up. You better do a good job. You better be good because you know who's coming to town and it's not Santa Claus. You better be good because God's watching you and he knows if you're naughty or nice. And so here's people think that these Ten Commandments is like a test and they have to pass the test. If they obey these Ten Rules, then God will accept them. Is that what's happening here? Is that that the context here? No. Not even close. That is not at all what's going on here. Read the previous verse. We just read verse 5, which says, If you will obey, you be my people. Read the previous verse, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You were lost. And slavery with your idols, and I revealed myself, and I made a way. A lamb died in your place, and I brought you out of Egypt slavery, and now you belong to me. So God redeemed them. The people here that are receiving God's word, these Ten Commandments, had already experienced mercy. They had already been redeemed. A lamb had already died in their place. 
They were already accepted by God. They were already loved by God. They had already experienced His grace, salvation. God had reached out to them already. And now, after He saves them, He loves them, a lamb dies for them, then He gives them, after these Ten Commandments. Remember what He says, you be my treasured possession in verse 5. He calls them treasured. What does that mean? It means that it's precious or valuable. I want you to imagine if you had a small child, and a lot of you do have small children. We saw them leave to go to class a few minutes ago. I want you to picture your small child having a disease, uh, a very rare, not very well-known disease that he contracted, and the doctors are able to discover a treatment for this child, but it's so experimental that the insurance won't cover it. Insurance says, no, not on the list of, of diagnosed diseases. We're not paying for that treatment. Very sorry. And so now you have a decision to make because your little boy needs this treatment, but insurance won't pay for it. Are you going to still go on that vacation to the Hong Kong Disney World next summer? Are you still going to buy that car that you've been really eyeing, that you don't really need, but you would really like? Are you still going to obsess over your stock performance and your portfolio? Are you still going to buy that brand new gadget that is so cool that you really can't afford? No! Forget the vacation. Forget the car. Forget the clothes. Forget the house. Forget the everything. I'm selling it all. I'll go bankrupt. I don't care what it costs. I want to save my little boy because I treasure him. And so I don't care what the cost because I value him more than everything else. And so he is so valuable and precious. I so treasure him that everything else that I thought mattered just doesn't really matter anymore. How much more God, who sees you and calls you his treasure, who did not spare his eternal son for you, he loves you, he treasures you. He paid no expense. He paid, well, just paid all the expense. He paid no attention to what it would cost. That is the tender mercy of God who reveals for relationship. And so he says, you're a treasure. You belong to me. I love you. I've saved you. And now he says, here are these ten commandments. Well, what does that mean? Really, these are not a test. Understand this in context. They've already experienced redemption. Not a test. To see if they'll obey, then they can earn God's favor. If that were the case, they would have never left Egypt. They would have stayed in slavery. If God had gone and revealed, hey, here's the Ten Commandments. If you do these ten really well, then I'll free you from slavery. Did God do that? No. He saved them. He loved them. He made a way. A lamb died. And then after they already have that approval by God, 
then he reveals what the relationship must look like. God reveals for us to have a relationship. His covenant, it requires loyalty and it requires purity. And so these Ten Commandments define what the relationship between us and God and other people must look like. That's what it is based on loyalty and on purity. And quite honestly, it's not that different from our relationships here as humans on earth. It's pretty much the same. If all I ever do to you is insult you and slander you and gossip about you and I'm a real jerk to you and I never do anything for you, I never consider your needs, I'm always really just vulgar to you, are we going to be good friends? We're not going to have any good relationship, are we? We need a degree of loyalty and a purity in our relationship. Same thing with you're married, husband or wife. If you don't have loyalty to her, what's going to happen to your relationship? What's going to happen if you don't maintain that loyalty and if you commit adultery? If, if you don't care for her or him, what's going to happen? It's going to deteriorate, fracture, it'll destroy the relationship. And so these Ten Commandments are all about relationship, defining what a relationship looks like. And the first four are about the vertical relationship, how we relate to God. As those who have experienced mercy, who have experienced God's grace, how we relate to Him. So the first one, you should have no other gods but me. And then He says, you will not make for yourselves any idols. And he says, you will not take my name in vain. I'm about displaying my name and my glory. You will not profane it. And then number four, he says, remember this happened to keep it holy. Take a day to worship me. So the first four describe how we must love God and have our loyalties and be defined by who we are in him. And so it's about how we relate and submit and love, trust, and obey Jesus. That's what the first four are how we relate to God. But the last six are the horizontal relationships and how we relate to other people. So, so the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And it says, do not kill. Do not murder specifically. And he says, do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. And do not covet. All of these are just basics for how we relate to other human beings. Love God, love others. Jesus summarized it. Love your Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see that in the Ten Commandments. Horizontal and vertical relationships. First four and last six. He's revealing that he is holy. He's revealing that he wants a people, as he said in verse 5, a holy nation. He wants us to be holy because we must be, because he is holy. So God is revealing himself, first of all, to reveal his character. Second of all, he reveals for relationship. Number three, God reveals to redeem. He reveals to redeem. These Ten Commandments, and we'll look at this more next week. The rest shows more laws. Some of them are kind of weird to us. Like, what are all these laws? Come back next week, we'll talk about the laws and our relationship with law and grace and all that we'll talk about next week because it's in the text. But specifically today, as we look at these ten commandments and 
what they mean for us today. Yes, it's about relationship. God keeps his end. We must keep our end. The problem is that we fail. Yes, we've been saved. Yes, we experience God's redemption. But you have to understand, God is holy. And he demands holy. And what he wants is to have a relationship with people who are equally holy as him. So that he can enjoy us, we can enjoy him. That's what God is after. Problem is, the Israelites did not measure up. And you and I don't measure up either. We fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach his standard. We don't keep the law. We break it. We are told to be perfect for God is perfect, be holy for God is holy. And here's the requirements, and we fail. But you have to remember the way God's introducing these Ten Commandments, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I redeemed you. Then he gives them these requirements. He yearns to be in relationship. He takes the initiative. See, he overcame our shortcomings. God made a way. How do I know this? Because God revealed it. Keep reading the story. You you get to a place called Matthew and Mark and Luke and John that reveals more of this story. And what you see is 1,400 or so years later, after Mount Sinai, a man named Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, God himself, the perfect Lamb, he climbed up another mountain. This time, not Sinai, this time Mount Calvary. But just like Sinai, Calvary would be covered in a thick cloud of darkness as the Father turned his face away as the Son was having his wrath poured upon him. So a dark cloud covered Mount Sinai. And Jesus, on the cross, he would endure the thunder of God's judgment. And he would endure the lightning of God's wrath in his own body. And the fire of God's holiness and justice would consume Jesus in his own body. You and I broke the covenant. You and I don't keep the law or God's word. We are the ones that have transgressed the lines of God's holiness. And it was Jesus who was struck down for it. The word redemption in the ancient world, the context is to pay the price to release someone or something from slavery. Sometimes the word ransom is used. Same, same sense, paying the price to liberate. So redemption requires a payment, which is why we read earlier, Patrick would be one of our elders if we vote on him in a few weeks. He read out of Matthew 5. Important passage where it describes that Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He represented us on the cross, and he accomplished what we could not accomplish. And when Jesus was on the cross, and he said, it is finished, just like Mount Sinai, Mount Calvary, shuck, this earthquake, shaking, because redemption had been purchased. 
What you see here is the clearest and most amazing and perfect display of God's glory on Mount Calvary. God accepts you, and he accepts me. Not because we deserve it, because Jesus paid the price, because he redeemed us. And if you're having a hard time obeying these commandments, again, come back next week. We'll talk about this in much more detail. But as we close this morning, if you're finding you're just having a really hard time with these commandments, if you're just struggling to keep them and your, your obedience is just not there to God, I can tell you that what you need most is the gospel. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you're here and you've never understood that you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. God offers you forgiveness. He offers you a new heart. He can transform you and enable and empower you to have a new heart that then desires to obey the commandments. You can repent of your sins and put your complete trust in Jesus. He'll change you. He'll redeem you. Maybe you need to go back to the gospel in the sense of you already are a believer, but you've somewhat drifted away and you've had your mind focused on different things and you've lost track. You've just been busy. You've just had other things crowd your mind and your soul and you have to refocus on Christ and meditate on what we've been talking about this morning. It's all about faith. No one has ever been, no one ever will be saved by keeping the law. Jesus did it, and now we are saved by faith alone, because of God's grace alone, through Christ alone. We must focus on Him, and then He will fuel through His Spirit our obedience. If you want to have a life of obedience, here's what you need to do, honestly. We talked about it all morning. But know who God is in His awesome power and his holiness and get a vision for how amazing and glorious God is and then realize that within that he is tender. He's tender towards you. He loves you. He wants you. And we're overwhelmed by his awesome power and size and beauty and holiness and yet he's tender towards us. Our hearts are gripped. And we'll find ourselves desiring him more than other things. Due to God's mercy, he revealed himself. He speaks today. Is he speaking to you? It's all about relationship. How is yours with Jesus today? Pray with me. Father, we are so overwhelmed. We're in awe that you would speak to us that you would reveal yourself to us. Father, we don't deserve that you would speak to us. We don't deserve that you would love us or that you would save us and then offer us a relationship. But we praise you. We praise you, Father, for the redemption that your son purchased for us. We offer you all of our worship, our allegiance, our whole lives. We want to obey you out of gratitude, out of love because of this relationship that's made possible that brings us unspeakable, indescribable joy. So I pray that you would help us to be a church that is about your gospel and living it out in community for your glory, Father.
We praise you and we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.